first world problem. Uh, you might not understand the irony of the phrase, there's just not enough room under my tree for all the presents. And while this term has lost maybe some of its impact due to overuse, it can still be a useful reminder of the difference in our reality and the perception of our reality. And that's a reminder all of us need, friends. So did the people that we're studying this week. Our text is an emphatic reality check for a people in captivity, far from home. A people whose perspective is fixated on the reality that they could see defeat, loss, enslavement, hopelessness, exile, and struggle. Into this perspective, the prophet offers an explosive alternative take, a staggeringly different reality. This involved both a change in attitude and redirected activity. And as usual, in this case, there is much for us to learn. My name is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church. We're really glad you're with us here in person or watching on the live stream or going to listen to this on podcast. As this, the third Sunday of Advent, we look at the text of the prophet Isaiah. And we've lit the candle of peace in our Advent wreath. And we watch the video and we listen to the gentle sound of the waves and the birds. We all want it, right? We all want that peace. But how do we get it? And what did it mean to the people in this time that we're reading about? Well, let's pray and ask God to give us ears to hear and eyes to see. <clears throat> Jesus, we're waiting. We're waiting for you. We've sung, come, Lord Jesus, come. Because we know although you have already come, it's not yet finished. The totality of everything, the experience of what you've done, has yet to permeate everything. We long for that day, and we long for the peace which is promised with it. So we pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to love and to obey as we walk out of here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's not unusual for the person who is preparing to teach to be tested by the text. That as we study, and especially the person who's going to get up Sunday morning to deliver the message, that somehow something in that message is personally a struggle. Well, that's definitely been true for me this week. And to all of you like Alex and my wife Jane who have had to listen to me whine and complain and moan and walk around with a dour mood, um, I'm really sorry. Um, but this text was ringing me out this week week. Because just like the people in Israel that we're going to see, even in the midst of my first world problems, 
all I could see was dead ends and failure and hopelessness and anything but peace. And you know, peace is one of those things that we know more by its absence, by our yearning for it, than our actual experience of it. It's one of those things that's been yearned for by every generation, but experienced only in the briefest of episodes. And like, not, and like most, if not all of the fruits of the Spirit, it's not something we obtain by direct effort. Even though we can say to someone, be at peace. It's, it's almost impossible to say, okay, I'm going to be peaceful. I'm just going to make myself peaceful. It's just not something that comes by direct effort. Rather, it's the fruit of something else. And in our text this week, the prophet is calling out to the people in exile who have been carried off from the promised land Their promised land is a smoking pile of destruction in their rearview mirror as they are carried off into slavery. Then they're thrust into a foreign pagan superpower where they are a despised minority and they are definitely struggling to find peace there. So whether our struggle is for with first world problems or with very real captivity, being a refugee, being in exile, the struggle is real. Into that, the prophet Isaiah says these words. Hey, all who are thirsty, come to the water. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why pay for something that will not nourish you? Why spend your hard-earned money on something that will not, will not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is nourishing. Enjoy fine food. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so you can live. Let's pause here for a minute. I mean, what's going on? This, this, in a way, really doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, what is he, what is he saying by this thing of, hey, they're struggling just to make ends meet. They're, they're an enslaved people. They're a captivity peop- a people in captivity, even if they've been put in royal ranks like some of the characters we've studied over the past few weeks. Life is a struggle. you got to work to make ends meet. And he's saying, hey, come and buy stuff without money. What, how do you buy something without money that doesn't make any sense? And as we were talking about it and wrestling through the text this week, um, I, I had an epiphany which I want to share with you, and I ask you to hold it and test it because I'm still working through it myself. Now, I grew up in the modern evangelical Western culture where we would often say, hey, Christianity isn't a a religion, it's a relationship, right? How many of you have heard that? How many of you have preached that? I've, I've preached that many times. And I've taken that kind of as this foundational truth. Like, even though it's, I mean, we can definitely work it out through the Bible. It's not black and white but I've taken it as a foundational truth. 
Here's the thing, though, in our society. We live, in a, we live in a society, especially now, where relationships are not foundational. We easily grow up in one place and yet move to another place for college. Far from home, far from family, far from friends. And then after college, we move to another city because that's where the job takes us. That's where it goes. And, and we make our decisions not based on relationships, not based on, hey, staying close to mom and dad or staying close to brothers and sisters, not staying close to friends. We will easily track place after place after place for what? Basically, food and shelter. I mean, these basic needs. And I've been thinking that as we and I understand why we say that. I understand why we want to contrast religion with relationship when we present Christianity. But for the first time, I thought this week, you know, that's, there's an element of that that's wrong. There's an element of that that is misleading. Because if we think about relationship in that context, the context of, hey, re relationships are secondary to making a living, to earning money, to advancing my career, well then doesn't Christianity become secondary? Doesn't it, doesn't it seem like then, okay, well the first thing I've got to do is make a living. The first thing I have to do is put food on the table. The first thing I have to do is provide shelter. And then if I have time, it would be nice to have Jesus in my life. And I think the prophet here is directly confronting that line of thinking. He's saying no. He's saying, listen, your, your obedience to God, your relationship with God, that is the food that is necessary for life. That your encounter with the living God, the God of Israel here, the God of Jesus that we know, your pursuit of God, being pursued by and responding to that, is literally food and drink. It is the most important thing that you can do. There is nothing that is more important. This is not a superfluous secondary add-on. It is the thing with that. So he goes on. He says, after that, he says, then I will make an, an unconditional covenantal promise to you. Just like the reliable covenantal promises I made to David. Look, I made him a witness to the nations, a ruler and commander of nations. Look, you will summon nations you did not previously know. Nations that did not previously know him will run to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. For he bestows honor on you. And again, this doesn't make any sense. Because if we, rem if we remember the Davidic covenant, we said, hey, I'm going to set David on the throne, and his throne's going to last forever. There's going to be an unbroken succession of kings that are going to go. This is written to a people where the line's been broken. There's no longer a king of Davidic or lineage there, Jerusalem is a vassal state. 
of poser rulers. And so what, what is he saying here? And again, I think he's drawing a contrast. The writer is saying something. He's saying, you live by the contractual circumstances of the world. You're living by buying and selling. You're living by threat and bribe. You're living by what you can see only with your senses. He says, I have a covenant with you that supersedes all those things. You're looking in the wrong place to make your assessment of what is happening. This is not just another way of saying, hey, think differently, or buck up, you just don't understand, stay strong. Because it's followed up with a very clear call to act and to give our effort differently. Because he follows with this. He says, seek the Lord while he makes himself available. Call on him while he is nearby. The wicked need to abandon their lifestyle and sinful people their plans. They should return to the Lord and he will show mercy to them and their God and to their God for he will freely forgive them. Teresa made the comment in the notes like, look at all these imperative verbs here. Come, buy, eat, listen, pay attention, look, seek, abandon, return, go out, be led along. This is an active, imperative call. It's not just, hey, change your mind about God. Yeah, do we need to do that? Yeah, absolutely. But you need to act on that. We need to put that into action. We need to make that a reality that affects everything that we do. Buy, sell, where we live, what we wear, who we interact with, all of it. The reality claimed by word, spirit, and church is that God is near, seeking after us. And we've heard that. Again, if you've grown up in the Western Evangelical Church, you've heard that. But rarely do we hear the warning that is given here as well. That to seek God while he makes himself available, call to him while he is nearby. It is clear to this that putting that off is not something that we can do forever. It's not an option to seek God on our timetable when we're ready, when we feel like it when the time is convenient for us. All of these imperatives are do it and do it now while there is time. Do it now while he is near. This is one of the things I love about Advent, about Lent, about going through this, is we plan our calendar. We actually make systematic changes to focus on seeking God. Because when left to ourselves, or I'll just speak for myself, when I am left to myself, it'll never be a good time. There'll always be something else going on. There will always be something else that seems more important. There'll, I'll always find an excuse not to do it now. Lulled into inactivity by the promise that, hey, God is good. God's seeking after us. 
God's promises never fail. Like He'll always accept us, which is all true. But the intention was never, ever to then let us just be off the hook and then take over and control things according to our time. And here's the thing. Here's the reality with it. The question is not, are we going to seek? Are we going to buy? Are we going to pay attention to? The question is, what are we paying attention to now? What are we spending our money on now? What are we giving our lives towards now? Because you're giving it to something all the time. We're always seeking something. We're always listening to something. We're always paying attention to something. So it's not like we're neutral and we're just kind of coasting and everything's okay. And then when the time comes, we can seek after God and everything will be okay. No, we're, we're heading in one direction or the other. If we are not seeking God while He is available, if we are not paying attention to God, the kingdom, the things of the Spirit, if we are not seeking to invest the best, the first, the foremost of our energy, our time, and attention into the kingdom, we are investing it somewhere else. And it is clear from the words of this passage that those things will never satisfy. They'll never pay off like we think they're going to pay off. In the moment, they may seem sweet. At the time, it may seem right. But ultimately, they're going to fail. They're going to deceive us. They're going to let us down. They're going to destroy us. So the question is, where are you going to put that energy? Where are we going to put that energy? What are we going to listen to? As James Covington said a few weeks ago, what are the things we should be seeking? What are the things we should be hungering for? And if we're not going to do it now, y'all, if we're not going to do it now, and we're not going to do it with this group of people, when are we going to do it? Who are we going to do it with? What's it going to take? The prophet goes on. He says, indeed, my plans are not like your plans. My deeds are not like your deeds. For just as the sky is higher than the earth, so my deeds are superior to your deeds, and my plans superior to your plans. As I said earlier, you know, our tendency is to place our promise, our praise, place our faith not in the covenantal promises of God, but in the contractual promises of this world. And this makes a huge difference. Are we basing everything on just what we see, feel, can ascertain with our natural minds? Or are we willing to listen and to trust? Because the prophet makes the promise to sum it up. He says, The rain and the snow fall from the sky and do not return, but instead water the earth and make it produce and yield crops and provide seed for the planter and food for those who must eat. In the same way, the promise that I make 
does not return to me having accomplished nothing. No, it is realized as I desire and is fulfilled as I intend. Indeed, you will go out with joy. You will be led along in peace. The mountains and the hills will give a joyful shout before you. And all the trees in the field will clap their hands. Evergreens will grow in the place of thorn bushes. Firs will grow in the place of nettles. There will be a monument to the Lord, a permanent reminder that will remain. Peace. Let out with peace. And just as I said earlier, as we often know peace, we often understand peace in the absence of it. We know what it's not. We also really narrowly define that down into kind of a personal emotional response. Just the way that I feel about it. Like I'm at peace. We make it very individualized. We make it very personal. We make it very subjective. But I don't think that's the primary peace the gospel offers. I think it's, it's necessary and it's definitely something to wish for, but I don't think that's a primary thing that's being talked about here. The, the kind of peace that the gospel offers is cosmic, is universal, transcends politics and environment. It is a promise of shalom that permeates everything. And when we reduce it to this subjective emotional experience that I have and you may not, our imaginations are stunted. Our habits and our activities become smaller and smaller and more myopic instead of ever broadening to include more and more, especially those on the margins, especially those who are abused, especially those who suffer especially those who have never heard the gospel, who live in captivity and pain and fear and loneliness. And as I said earlier, that peace is not something that we achieve by direct effort. I wonder if the peace, that personal peace that we are seeking, and again, that's not a bad thing, isn't best achieved by seeking peace for other people. I wonder if it's not best experienced when I look out for the peace of someone else. When I seek the peace of another group, another person, another place with that. I believe that that is echoed in the words of the prophet here. But I have to make a confession. As I confessed earlier, that this has been a really tough week for me. I've listened to, I've paid attention to, I've sought, I've focused on my circumstances. Every reason why things aren't going to work out, things are going to go bad, things will turn out black. But that's rooted in something deeper. That's not just happenstance. That comes from, in my heart, I am a rebel. I'm a rule breaker. I hate doing things because I'm told to do them. Anybody else? Am I alone? Right? I mean, often 
it seems like if I'm given no choice in the matter, if it's not presented to me as a choice, I will do everything to sabotage it, to resist it, if not outright rebel against it. I want things my way, on my timetable, at a cost that I think is fair, in a way that I can understand. And I'm starting to see more and more that most of my disquiet, most of my despair, most of my lack of peace is directly related to that. So if you're like me, you're being told, especially at Christmas, to seek God. Pay attention to God. Give more effort to God. Seek the kingdom. Lay down these other things. And while superficially we may smile and nod and sit quietly and say, yes, John, and make a few notes, there's something inside of us that is like, hell no. (laughs) There's something inside of us that is already making excuses why that's good for John and that's good for everybody else, but he doesn't understand me. He doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't know what I face. Can we let that go today? Can we recognize it for what it is? Can we take it out and look at it and repent? Because at its core, this is a message of repentance. Peace is a fruit of repentance. It's a result of letting go. It's a result of admitting your rebellious heart. And it's a result of seeking God now. Right now. Listening and responding. You may not have a rebellious heart. Look, I get it. You may be sitting here and going... I understand what you're saying, but that's not my heart. I long for God. I want God. I think I've repented. I really have tried. I don't want my own way. I don't want my own things. I want God's way. You may be sitting there and going, but that just seems like a far-off promise. It seems like a really torturous mirage. Well, there's hope for you as well. There's hope for you as well as you submit yourself to the Word and you start to believe in the covenantal promises of God by faith and you start to walk out in the reality that you may long for but can't see, but you do it anyway. You walk it out. Your heart may be longing to obey, but you just need the nudge of community and the Word and the Spirit and that too is available today. So whether you are a stiff-necked rebel like I am, or I feel like I am most of the time, or whether you are just longing for the faith that it takes to walk it out, it's available today. It's available today. God, we need it. And God, we repent and we believe. Help us repent and believe. And as we take this 
cup and we take this bread this morning. As by faith and as an act of repentance, we walk up and we receive what you offer today. We ask that you would affirm in us your presence. That you would give us the encouragement we need to do what only can be done by the Spirit. That we would seek you, pay attention to you, hunger for you and thirst for you, and find only our satisfaction in you. Here at Grace, if you're visiting, our table is open to all who are seeking the mercy, the kindness, and the salvation of Jesus. We don't dismiss by rows. You come up as you're ready as the worship team plays. We also take up an offering to share.